All right. Hello. Good evening. Uh, I'm Charlie, and uh, welcome to uh, SLM. I want to spend a few minutes tonight just kind of explaining um, what SLM is, how it is functioning now, what's kind of available to you, and how we'd like to move forward. And then I am going to uh, teach, because Wednesday night we are we're doing a lot of teaching um, that's very, very instrumental. I feel, I feel like it's what you'd call foundational in regard to um, new birth, baptism of the Spirit, identity, um, stuff like that. And so I am going to teach because I'll be teaching the Wednesday night class once a month, the first Wednesday of the month. I'll teach. We have two other um, outstanding teachers, both very well uh, rooted and established in the Word and have also been faithful walking with God for a number of years. And so they're going to be... Uh, they're going to be preaching this year. Ryan Stansky is one, and Paul Johnston is the other. Both, uh, both great guys. They'll be teaching on Wednesday nights. So if you're new, and um, we'll be accepting enrollment throughout the whole month of September, and then we're likely to have new people ready to lead for the second semester. So we'll probably be taking enrollment again in the second semester. The reason we stopped taking enrollment whenever people showed up was we we want to maintain integrity and the intimacy of our small groups and allow them to really grow and flourish and get to know each other without the constant changing of chemistry and having new people show up and having to get to know them. So um, SLM is a small group structure primarily. Um, we have teaching that now happens on Wednesday nights and Thursday nights, but the real heartbeat of the whole thing is this small group structure. It provides um, growth um, and walking through the issues of life in the context of spiritual family. So the way that it's set up, our leaders have leaders that have leaders that have leaders. And the goal of doing that is to maintain accountability so that you don't have a leader that's telling you something that's heretical, non-biblical, or just bad advice. That they also have a leader that they have to talk to about the things they're telling you for the sake of making sure they're giving sound counsel and also that it's biblical, because we kind of like that. Um, so that was, that was a serious joke. We do like that. Um, so, But we want to make sure that there aren't any outliers that are just kind of doing their own thing. And so we want to make sure that the integrity of the group is from top to bottom. And so that's why there's accountability all the way up. But it also allows you to get into a situation where you can start to develop relationships that will go on year after year after year, have people um, leading you that can listen to what you're going through. They may have gone through it, or they may be able to give advice, um, or at least point you toward the scripture and helping you to walk through the things um, that you're going through at the time. So the small group structure is what I feel is the real heartbeat of what SLM is all about. We teach on Wednesday night and Thursday nights, and in the past we were all in one group. And what's happened now, this is our fourth year, and so some of the people that were here the first year are still here four years later. So now they've heard me teach the same thing like six times, and they're sick of it. Um, so we had to have a way to continue teaching the foundational stuff that is it's absolutely essential. And I didn't feel like we could stop teaching it for people that came in new because I don't feel like you can really grow into health without first having some of these absolute foundational things established. And some of them you'll have heard some of them might be new, but it's worth 
having access to hearing those. Now, for you guys that come on Wednesdays, you're welcome to come Thursdays as well if you're able and would like to. It's open to you. And Thursdays this year, we'll be looking at some leadership issues, but largely I want to look at some ethical, what I'd call ethical issues. Some of the issues of our day, some of the cultural issues. Why does God uh, say things should be the way he does? And so what I want to do is I want to be able to look at, okay, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're trying to establish here to some degree before he comes back. That's the Lord's prayer. So if your kingdom come, we should know what that should look like if we're to try to establish it to some degree here in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our cities. And so the ethics, what I would call ethics, are... How does God feel about certain issues and how should we do life when it comes to marriage, when it comes to family, when it comes to business, when it comes to um, any of the different social issues that are happening in our day. We're going to look at governmental issues, so um, stuff like self-defense, um, stuff like evangelism. Practically, how do we do this on a day-to-day -day basis? How do we say and establish your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? So, um, we're going to look at Romans tonight, but before we get there, I just want to tell you that some of the stuff that you hear here, that's H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E, hear here, um, may be a little bit different than what you've grown up hearing. And I understand, um, because I heard things that I'm going to teach tonight taught differently when I grew up, and I also heard it taught differently after I was grown up. And this isn't to say this is special revelation or anything like that. This is biblical teaching that's happening in churches throughout the country, but at times it's taught differently than what you will hear here. So what I want to ask of you is, like the Bereans, please come with an open mind and engage all of Scripture to see if what's being taught is biblical. We believe that it's absolutely biblical, that it's... Um, it's got integrity throughout the Scripture. It's supported throughout Scripture. It's cross-referenced by Scripture. Otherwise, we wouldn't be presenting it. And so what I want to tell you is that some things you may hear may be like, wow, I've never heard it that way before. Get in the Word and examine it yourself. Maybe you've heard it a hundred times this way. Praise God. If so, uh, we'd love to make connections with your church and, and uh, have, have further ties that way. But I just, I just tell you that there may be some things. Please don't Take offense as a first response. Engage the scripture. Find out if we're teaching heresy or if it is biblical. We believe that it's completely biblical. So, um, We really want to, we believe strongly about the spiritual mothers, fathers thing. So I've had spiritual mothers and fathers throughout my walk with God. And now we're trying to be spiritual mothers and fathers for people that are almost the same age as us. And that's what SLM is designed to be. It's um, Paul's command to Timothy to find men um, to teach that are trustworthy to teach others. So it's multiple generational that way. And uh, so this whole thing is about developing spiritual family and setting you in a safe environment, what we would call a greenhouse, where you can grow in a semi-protected environment but have 
consistent support to access whenever you need assistance and help. So people have asked, how long-term is this? This isn't a program. This isn't like a one-year program or a three-year program or a five-year program. I've been in this and doing this since I showed up in this church. How it looks has changed shape. SLM has been around for four years, and many of us have been here since the start. And our roles and how we have functioned in SLM has just shifted and changed, but it's kind of a kind of an ongoing thing. So there's no, hey, if you do this for two years, we're going to give you a certificate, pat you on the back, and you're ready to take on the world. Um, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. It's just a constantly growing, changing spiritual family that could go on for however long the Lord has you here. Um, so I told you about our leaders, told you about our long-term relationships. Uh, most of my best and closest relationships have been established through this or something like this over the years. My, my closest friends, my family, uh, Pastor Inshar, my spiritual parents. Um, you know, it's funny because Trevor always says, your dad or your mom, and then goes, I mean, my, my in-laws. And uh, because it's just like that kind of family, I'm in their refrigerator probably more than their own kids are. So that's what we want to see continue to grow and establish um, throughout. So you, what I'd like to do at the end is um, get your contact info, and we'll have a small group leader We'll get your contact information, and then we'll contact you with um, some possible group times. And they'll also give you some, we have some packets of information just for helping you be able to ask questions of yourself to engage yourself on a day-to-day basis. The ultimate goal of what we're doing here is to learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind on a day-to-day basis and flesh that out. And so we believe that happens in the context of marriage, in the context of family, in the context of having a job and going to school. What, it doesn't matter what it is, but we believe that this is normal life. That, you know, you don't have to be monastic to be able to do this. You can love the Lord your God on a day-to-day basis. And so the ultimate goal of what we're trying to establish as people is how do we ultimately love the Lord our God this way on a day-to-day basis. And so... Some of the tools that you'll receive from leaders will assist you in asking questions of yourself and helping draw your attention and, uh, toward the Lord and spend time with them there. So they'll, they'll contact you about getting in a small group, and they'll also um, give you this information that will kind of, it's just an assistant. You know, if you're familiar, anybody familiar with John Wesley and what they used to call the Holy Club? They had a list of 22 questions that they'd ask themselves. Now, the Holy Club was established before Wesley was actually born of the Spirit in his own testimony. However, some of the questions that they used were outstanding for self-examination of, like, where am I at with God? And so we took some of his questions, we twisted them, changed them, morphed them, and built our own stuff. But we have a list of some questions that you can use for yourself in just examining, where's my heart before God at this time? You know, am I, am I really walking with him, getting to know him, enjoying him, trusting him? Questions like that. So they're very valuable. Um, we continue to go back to them year after year. So they're, they're not just one season. It's something you can continue to refer back to over and over. So with that said, um, I'm a little long-winded at times. 
Um, we, will, we will continue to accept people um, through the month of September. So if you're new or you know someone else that's looking to come and, and be a part of it, please let them know to come in on Wednesdays and uh, we'll make that work. And then if you guys want to show up on Thursdays as well, you're more than welcome. Tomorrow night, um, I'll be looking and discussing a little bit of the, we, we all want to be a world changer. That's kind of the phrase of the um, century right now in the church. Everybody wants to be a world changer. And some of the destructive ways that we have um, found ourselves maybe impotent because we've been trying to change the world and we haven't taken the time to establish things in our own houses, in our own cities that should have happened first. Um, so I'm actually going to take some lessons out of the Vietnam era, which we'll be talking about tomorrow night. So if you guys are interested and you want to show up for that, that'd be cool too. So I'm going to talk about Romans 3 through 6. But I'm going to start in Romans 7 in what I believe to be, at least it was for me, one of the most misunderstood passages in Scripture. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about that. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll try to do it in 45 minutes. If not, forgive me. Uh, usually this, the class is only an hour, but I had to do 15 minutes of intro tonight, so you just got to bear with me on this. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for stirring our hearts and desiring, causing us to desire more of you. Father, we want to know you more deeply. We know that regardless of circumstance, life in abundance is found in the knowledge of you. And so, God, I ask that as we set a, set a course through this semester, that we would be purposeful and intentional, yes, in answering your call. Um, that we would be intentional about, um, about the pursuit of you, about the knowledge of you, about um, loving you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Lord, we thank you for each one here and ask that um, we would have wisdom and insight in, in helping find them a place where they can tie in and build deep and lasting relationships that will help them not only be firm while they're here at school or working or in their marriages uh, or families or wherever you may have them at this time, but that they would also find a place to grow and flourish in a greenhouse type setting. We love you. Thank you. Amen. All right, so Romans 7 is where I'm actually going to start. And um, I'm going to work my way back. E-Bible. So, if you're familiar with Romans 7, you know that Romans 7 is the normal Christian life of struggle against sin. <clears throat> so, the most common taught thing that I had heard um, as I was a, a young man wanting to pursue God was that I would struggle this way for the rest of my life, that my entire life's future would be Romans 7. That this was normal Christian living. And by that, what I mean when I refer to Romans 7, I want to point to verses 15 through about uh, 19, 20. So let me read it, and I think you'll understand what I'm talking about. I do not know... Let me start in 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. 
I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. And it is. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing live, nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. He goes on. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I find myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Now, if we know Romans 8, we know that he goes on to say that it is Christ Jesus who has set us free. However, Romans 7 is regularly pointed to as what your normal Christian experience will be. That you will continue to do what you do not want to do for all of your Christian existence, and that's going to be your life, Romans 7. So no matter how much you pursue God, how much you love God, how much he brings about transformation in you, your entire existence as a Christian will be failure. Doing what you do not want to do. Doing the things that you hate to do. And an inability and a powerlessness to do what you really want to do that you believe is pleasing to God. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I mean, have you heard that before? So, I actually made the mistake of reading the whole book of Romans instead of just a part of it at times. And if you read the whole book, you realize that Romans 7 is actually an illustration of Paul's life before he was born of the Spirit. And in the beginning part of Romans 7, he uses an illustration out of marriage in which he describes what actually happens when one dies to sin and is born of God. But his illustration of his struggle with sin is in reference to who he was before he was a Christian. And the proof I have is in Romans 3 through 6. So that's where we're going to go now. So I'm tipping my hand as to what we're going to look at. But I think we are very familiar. I'm going to kind of breeze through Romans 3, 4, and 5 and really focus in on Romans 6. So Romans 3. Paul is, right now, he's building his case against the human race, their sinfulness, their corruption, their unrighteousness as a whole, as a race. He's pointing to the justice and the faithfulness of God and reminds the reader that it's not God on trial before men, but men who will be judged by a good and faithful God. In verses 9 through 18, he points to uh, the, the indictment of humanity before God. So what shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That's everyone on earth. Then he goes on, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. So Paul, in this passage of Scripture, is he's leveling the boom, so to speak, against all of humanity. And I think we have a really good grip on this. We understand that if, if we've grown up in church, 
We understand that all of humanity is fallen, is corrupt, that there is no one righteous before God, not even one. As we remember Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Many of us that have been in church, I think we're really familiar with Romans 3 and the implications. It's part of the Romans road. If you're trying to lead someone to the Lord, you have to tell them, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in need of redemption. And that's what Romans 3 is all about. It's bringing every single person in, in creation under the judgment of a good and just God. However, it's in Romans 3 that Paul makes a transition, and it's in verse 21. He's just finished indicting all of humanity, and then he suddenly changes gears and he says, but now. And but now is like, wait, it's one of those, wait, what? You know, he's just, he's just pushed this locomotive of judgment upon all of humanity, and suddenly it's stopping, and he's sending it in the other direction with this, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from the law, or the acting out of good behaviors, has been made known, or realized, made available, to which the law and the prophets were actually testifying and speaking of. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's, here comes the famous verse. There's no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And usually we stop there. But Paul continues and says, And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So suddenly, Paul has just indicted all of humanity, but then he stops and he says, but now a righteousness has come from God, apart from the law, simply if you believe. So on the one hand, he's just spent an entire half a chapter explaining why all of mankind is under the judgment of God, and then he stops and says, but if anyone believes that a righteousness is made available from God through Jesus, they get it. No other requirements. Apart from the law, meaning nothing you do can cause you to attain to this. The only way you can get it is by accepting it, believing it, receiving it. That's the sole requirement of the righteousness that's made available by God. So then he goes on to say that God presented Christ as a sacrifice to satisfy the punishment needed because of sin. He then emphasizes that men's actions brought sin and condemnation, and God's actions brought righteousness for all who believe. This is still in chapter 3. Then Paul makes this statement, because another errant teaching is that God chose not to be just, but chose to be merciful instead. God can't not be just. Justice is who he is. But in Romans 3.26, Paul says that he did this, sacrifice Christ, to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of those who believe. So God fulfilled justice for all the sin of all mankind by the sacrifice of his son. He fulfilled his justice. However, he also was the justifier of all of us who should believe. What's justifier? Anyone know what it means to be justified? Um, the dictionary defines it as made guiltless. That's, that's, I think, Webster's 1888 definition, is that you're made guiltless. So to be justified means 
that God makes you guiltless by punishing his son. So through the punishment of his son, he fulfills and accomplishes justice. And at the same time, for us who believe, he makes us guiltless. So he is both just and justifier of all who believe. Okay, so Romans 4, I'm going to kind of skim over. It's a faith chapter. It's an important chapter, but because of time, um, I will say this, that repentance and the stepping into obedience of God is a fruit of salvation or the birth of the Spirit. It is not a precursor, but an overflow or a fruit of it. So new birth will result in repentance, but repentance does not produce new birth. Chapter 5. Now Paul begins to get into biblical grace. When I say biblical grace, what I mean is it's not okay to continue on living the same way we once did before we knew Jesus, once we've been born of the Spirit of God. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul explains that the justice of God has been poured out upon Christ, and by doing so, he's made us guiltless or justified through faith. This guiltlessness has given us peace with God and allowed us access into the grace in which we now stand. Grace is not the same as mercy. Mercy is what pardons us and makes us righteous or justified or guiltless before God. That's mercy. Grace is that in which, that in which we now stand. Grace is what enables us, empowers us to live in victory because we've been spared through mercy. Grace is not the permission slip to continue on in sin. Grace is the power to be victorious over it. Now, in verse 6, this is a really cool verse. Verse 5, we know. Here's verse 6. At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, so he's saying he's... He, it's. This is always referred to as a message of love. When we were in sin, Christ died for us, and he loved us that much. And it's true. But what he said is, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The statement, while we were still powerless, implies that as children of God, we are no longer powerless. There's a huge message hidden in that one statement. We were powerless at one time to be victorious over sin. If any of you knew me, you can testify with me that that's true. You couldn't not sin is the statement. You were powerless against us. And at that time, God mercifully rescued us, delivered us, justified us, made us guiltless. But the implication is that now, as his children, we are no longer powerless when wrestling with sin. Then Paul, in the rest of chapter 5, he goes on to recap from creation what has transpired. We know much of it 
In chapter 6, he's going to really hammer some things home, but I'll explain what Paul does. Just This is the Charles Standard Version. When Adam disobeyed the command, he died. We know that, right? You know, Adam sinned, he, he ate the apple, and he sinned, and he died. And he received a nature that was sinful. Sin entered the human race. From that time, sin and death had the power over humanity. Men were incapable of obeying God. Men couldn't not sin. Because of one disobedient act, death was given power over humanity, the power of sin. When Christ came and died, his act of obedience brought life back to the human race. We know that part, right? For any who would believe. Verse 19 in chapter 5 states that Adam's disobedience made all men sinners. This is a literal thing. It made us sinners. And I think we know this teaching really well. We died. We were made sinners. Our nature is sinful. Yeah? This is standard biblical. We all understand this theological doctrine. Made sinners reflects the death of the human nature to a sinful state. However, then... Paul states that Christ's obedience made men righteous. Made righteous reflects the creation of a new nature in the same way that made sinners reflects the death and the becoming of a sinful nature. This language is not symbolic, but literal. We have been given a new nature through our faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 6, I'll prove it. Okay, so Paul, in chapter 6, has to start out because what's happening is people are hearing this gospel and they're going, hey, if I sinned a lot, that's a testimony of how great God's grace is, mercy is, by sparing me. So if you sin more, grace abounds. So this was actually a doctrine that was being taught. If you go sin more, you're glorifying God more. Because he's, he forgive you. So just, you can go do your thing. And, and so Paul right away is starting out by addressing this false grace doctrine. But in it, he gets into the true doctrine of grace and what has actually transpired in the death and resurrection of Christ in us because we believe. Chapter 6, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Now, if Romans 7 is in fact the normal Christian existence, then Paul just contradicted himself and you need to throw out the whole book. Because if Paul is explaining Romans 7 as a normal Christian existence, as a spirit-filled believer, to fail in sin is your future and your destiny. If that's what he's saying, then you have to throw out the whole book because his first statement in Romans chapter 6 is, shall we go on sinning by no means? We died to sin, how can we live in it any longer?
Okay. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Yes, this is fairly standard, right? I mean, we know this stuff. We know that I was buried with Christ, and so I died with him, and now I'm, I get new life through believing in Jesus. But I also know that Romans 7 is probably going to be my standard experience because, you know, I still got this whole sin nature thing, and I'm enslaved to sin, and that's just the way it's going to be. But that's not what Paul is saying in Romans 6. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Okay, No longer be slaves to sin. Hold on, this Romans 7 slaves to sin thing, it's, again, he's contradicting himself. Unless Romans 7 is an illustration from before he was born of the Spirit of God. Again, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again, Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Again, he's contradicting Romans 7. He's contradicting Romans 7 in Romans 6. He's forcing that illustration that he uses in Romans 7 to be an illustration pre-conversion. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. He's telling us that we can Offer our bodies as instruments of righteousness and be successful at obeying God. Continuing on. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. See, often what's taught about grace now is that grace allows you, when you sin, that it's all okay. That, that how verse 14 would be read under the current, often, teaching of grace, is that the, for, for sin can go ahead and be your master, because you're, under law, or you're not under law, but under grace. That's how verse 14 would be read under much grace teaching today. But what Paul actually said was, 
For sin shall not be your master, for you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, because you're under grace, you are victorious over sin and don't have to obey its demands. Being under grace leads us to be freed from the mastery of sin, which is explained in Romans 7. It does not allow us to continue in sin without guilt, but it empowers us to overcome sin and live as instruments of righteousness. Okay. A couple of my favorite verses coming up here. Verse 15. <clears throat> as Paul goes into verses 15 and 16, he tells us that men will be slaves, we will be slaves as long as we live on the earth. We'll be slaves of whatever master we obey, sin or obedience. Sin leads to death, obedience lives to righteousness. Verse 15, he says, What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. We as humans have no choice but to be a slave for the rest of our existence, either to God unto obedience and righteousness and life, or to sin unto death. But we, we have a choice to make, and grace allows us the choice to live as obedient sons unto righteousness and unto life. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, like he describes in Romans 7, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Ready for this? Maybe my favorite verse in the Bible. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. This is the exact opposite of what he said we once were in Romans 3. Romans 3, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. We are fallen and corrupt. We are slaves to sin. That's what Romans 3 is all about, and it establishes it all the way through. And all of a sudden, because of faith in what Jesus did, the awareness of our crucifixion of our sinful nature as we were baptized into death with Christ, Paul says we have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. What does a slave have to do? Obey his master. Paul is telling us in chapter 6 that chapter 7 is not our destiny as Christians born of the Spirit of God. He's telling us in chapter 6 that our destiny and our future, born as children of God, is to be a slave of righteousness which means our nature now wants to obey God and do right. Mind-blowing. If we've been made a slave to righteousness, the implication is that our nature has been changed from what it once was, which is sin, in that we were unable to not sin and is now changed to righteousness, and that we can now resist sin and fulfill an obedient life to God. 
Scripture tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not be seen as, not let God look through the cross at us as, but become the righteousness of God. In our nature, we have the righteousness of God. 2 Peter says it like this, His divine power, this is chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. His divine nature has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature. Once had a sinful nature, now partakers of the divine nature. We have become the righteousness of God. Okay, wait, 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 wait. What about 1 John? You guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you guys know 1 John? And how many of you guys are thinking about 1 John right now? Anybody know what, what 1 John I'm talking about? i got 10% battery left. I better be able to get there quick. 1 John, who knows what I'm talking about? Anyone who claims to be without sin is a liar. None of you guys were thinking of that? I'm a little bit disappointed. He was. All right. Thank you, Micah. First John 1.8. For if we say, what translation is translation. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. How many of you guys were thinking about that verse when I was talking about what he said in Romans 6? But, Paul's version of this is all of Romans 3. But John evidently wasn't quite the theologian, maybe not the mental giant that Paul was. John was a little bit more like me. So John just says Romans 3 like this. You know, Paul spent a whole chapter about the unrighteousness of man and how we're all under judgment. John just says it one statement. If you say you don't sin, you're a liar. That's John's version of Romans 3. Then he goes on to say, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just Forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness or make us righteous. Saying the same thing. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then we stop because that's the end of the chapter. But John didn't write chapters. He wrote a letter. And there was no chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 when he wrote it. So John was continuing on with his argument. And this is what he says in 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's writing Romans 3, 4, 5, and 6 in four verses. Paul took four chapters. John took four verses. He just figured you should just listen to me because I'm John. Paul's like, I'm going to tell you all the reasons why. John's like, I'm just going to tell you. This is the way it is. You better believe me because I'm John. I can say what I want. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Then he says this, and imagine this, in our current culture of just do whatever you want and grace will cover you. This is what John says. But if anyone does sin, he's kind of going, if this should happen, I can't imagine that it would because now you have grace. But if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John expresses surprise that anyone should sin. He tells them, little children, I'm telling you this so you won't sin. But if it should so happen, it's okay. We have a propitiation. We have an intermediary for us. That's Jesus. But you need not sin Because you are in him, you are now a slave of righteousness. The gospel that Paul presents in Romans 1 through 8 is the gospel that though all of humanity is under the weight of judgment because we have been born with a sinful nature, The good news is not that, but if you come as a Christian and you work really hard and you do all the right things and you, you know, act the right way for the rest of your life that, you know, you're going to be credited as a saint before God. He says, no, if you believe that Jesus died to fulfill the justice of God on your behalf, just believe, then you are crucified with him, your sinful nature is dead too. And if you believe that and you believe he was resurrected, then you are resurrected with him. And if you're resurrected with him, you also receive the divine nature. You become a partaker of the divine nature. You guys, if you look across the scripture, how many verses are out there? You're a new creation. You're brand new. And we look at it and we just kind of brush it off into, it's just a figure of speech. You know, well, yeah, you know, now we can love God or something, but we can't be different. It's wrong. We are literally a new creation given the righteous nature of God. Our minds still need to be renewed. This is, this is the catch. Because for some of us, hopefully some of you guys have never dabbled in sin. Um, some of us immersed ourselves in it. And so there was a renewing of the mind that had to take place where our mind learns to agree with the righteous nature that God has deposited in us through faith. And when Paul talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, your mind has to learn to agree with what God has brought about through a miracle, Supernatural happening where you are born of the Spirit of God as a child of God and receive a new nature. The longer you spent living in sin, probably the longer it's going to take for the renewing of your mind. But that's why we have great teachers all over the internet and we have small groups with which you can ask these questions and wrestle through these things. But the renewing of your mind happens through the washing of water in the Word. The renewing of our mind happens through what does God say about how I should live in regard to this? And our minds are renewed as we seek God and say, what does God say about this? How should I do this? How should I act in this? But what has actually transpired in the gospel 
is that we've been born again. We've been born a child of God. But to be a child of God, we have to be made of the same nature that he is. And that's what Paul says has happened. Our minds need to be renewed continually by being in the word, being in the place of prayer, through fellowship and encouragement, exhortation, rebuke when needed. Hopefully, you are a voice-sensitive person to when God corrects you, and you don't need massive discipline to be brought into your life because it's painful. But our minds need to be renewed to have what Paul said the apostles had. We have the mind of Christ. The bar for the church today is so low. We so expect that our life is to be filled with continual sin and the only thing we get out of grace is that we won't get in trouble when we come back to the altar week after week after week. But the reality of what God made available is like John expressed surprise when people did fall in sin and told him, but don't worry, should this happen, you have, you have Jesus who's your intermediary. But it's not supposed to be our norm. Being a child of God goes so far beyond just being embraced by him and loved by him. It's, it's actually about becoming like him. It's about learning to think like he does and act like he does and respond like he does. And as our minds are made new and we learn to agree with how he says we should do life as expressed in his word, we are already made slaves of righteousness. It's in the Bible, guys. We have been given a new nature, made a new creation that wants to obey God, a slave of righteousness. It's in the Bible. Our minds need to be renewed where we train ourselves to agree with what he wants us to do and act on it. I'm convinced that if we knew the power that has been made available to us in grace, that with our agreement with what God says is available to us and expressed in his word as normal Christian living, we'd start to walk in such a way that we won't even recognize ourselves. So as, as we go through SLM... I'm going to ask you to do another favor for me, and later it will, it will give you dividends down the road. The scripture expresses that we are a new creation in Christ. A new creation in Christ. You don't know who you are. You don't know the fullness of what he created in you, brand new, the moment you were born as a child of God. A new creation in Christ happens when we're born of the Spirit of God. And guys, it's constantly transforming and growing into His image and likeness. That's also in the Bible. Please don't limit what He made in you by trying to tell God, others, and yourself what you are and what you are not. The only way we can find out what He created is by talking to the Creator about what He made. Sounds kind of cheesy, but it's the reality. No one else can describe to you what he created in you and created for you and created you for other than him. But when you try to define yourself a certain way, you will limit yourself from becoming everything he wants you to be. I did this to myself for years. 
I was crippling myself. I was frustrating myself. I made myself miserable because I had to find myself as someone who only had a calling and a role in the church. Why was that? Because I was afraid of how non-Christians might respond to my expression of Christianity, the gospel, and my love of God. And so I defined myself as someone who only had a call to the church, and I was paralyzing myself from a huge amount of joy and ministry that God had for me outside the church. And it was only when I stopped trying to define myself as one thing, instead of allowing him to define me for me, that suddenly joy began to come. And I began to go, wow, I'm different than I thought I was. My personality changed. Your personality will change as you walk with God. Who you are will change as you walk with God. You are born a new creation. But if you see these babies running around in the little infants, they are a fraction of what they will one day become as adults. Well, it's the same thing for us when we're born of God. We're in infancy. Don't limit who he has created in you by trying to define yourself a certain way. So this Romans passage is absolutely foundational. I think now you guys kind of see why. Because if we limit ourselves to our sole struggle in life being trying to lose as infrequently as possible the battle with sin, we'll paralyze ourselves permanently. That is not the primary battle of life. Every man's battle is not to try not to sin in lust. Every man's battle is to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We were given victory over sin and lust in those struggles so that we could then expand his kingdom throughout whatever sphere of influence we've been given. That's every man's battle. The false Roman 7 teaching has paralyzed men throughout the church into believing this is their struggle for the rest of their life and that's as good as it's going to get. And you're going to lose more days than you're going to win. It's not true. It's not biblical. The gospel is that we have already been given the victory. Grace empowers us, gives us the authority to walk away from those sins that once held us captive, to become slaves of righteousness, and our new pursuit and focus becomes the expansion of God's kingdom throughout the earth. So, this is phase day one of what we're going to go off of for the rest of this semester and through the year. Um, Paul and Ryan, we have a curriculum that just goes one week at a time. Uh, Ryan will be teaching next week. Ryan is one of the most amazing teachers when it comes to identity, who we are as sons, what we receive as inheritance. And these are all things that we're going to take the time to examine in depth Paul is going to teach about faithfulness, about steadfastness, about the development of character and the fruits of the Spirit and the walking out of those things on a day-to-day basis. This is one of the most steadfast, faithful guys uh, that I've ever known as a young man. He's, he's incredible. He's lived uh, the godly life of a 60-year-old man and like, I don't know how old he is, like 29. Uh, I don't think he's 30. If he is, I didn't tell you. Um, but... These guys are going to walk us through, and I'm going to help here and there, but walk us through what does it look like to be born as a child of God, made a new creation, and how do we now live that we've been given the victory to stand in grace? Amen? Okay. So, if after all that, you don't think that we're heretics, um, 
Give me your contact information. I will give your contact info to a small group leader tomorrow night. They will contact you by the end of the day Friday and talk with you about um, when a small group will meet and all of that stuff. So one of the things is you get to meet with a small group once a week, which is awesome. They're, we usually ask that they go 90 minutes just so that everyone's got opportunity to share. Typically, like for my wife's group, it's like four hours. Um, might be because I'm babysitting during that window of time. Not sure. Uh, she claims it's serious the whole time, but I regularly walk in on cocoa parties. I don't know. Um, but anyway, you get to meet with a group of um, women or men and share openly and honestly about what you're going through. They, the leaders are trained to encourage you through. We don't, we don't really um, sit down and ask questions about, okay, where'd you mess up this week? Because the scripture tells us that's not meant to be our destiny. So we get together and say, where did you excel this week? How did you expand the kingdom of God this week? And it motivates us and causes us to see like-minded men and women around us and propels us into greater things than we thought we were, we were capable of doing. So um, I'm going to pray. If you're going to do SLM, please give me your contact info. Name and a phone number is fine. And a small group leader will contact you by the end of the day Friday about being a part of a small group. Thanks for coming. Lord, we love you so much. Jesus, thank you for allowing justice to be fulfilled in you and upon you. That our Father could be both just and the justifier of us who believe. Father, we, I just ask that your word would go deep, uh, sown as seed on good soil. That it would bear much fruit. That you would bring about the supernatural birth of the Spirit, and that you would make us aware in our minds through the Word that you have created us new and made us slaves of righteousness, that you have created us in Christ Jesus for good works, which you planned in advance for us to do, not just to struggle against sin, but for good works of the expansion of your kingdom in the context of your family. We love you. We thank you again. Amen.